0: Rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of life, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Superboy.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 185 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, we're going to continue our run through season three of The Adventures of Superboy, no 2 part of this week, and uh, for a couple weeks going forward. So I have a couple standalone episodes this week for you. Two very different episodes, but both of which home in on the supernatural a little bit. I've got episodes seven and eight, The Sons of Icarus, and The Carnival. And I'll get to those episodes in a minute. Before I do that, I have feedback to address. Feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 174. And Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. The power of evil was okay, but we'd... A bit by the presence of Key Luke, who could play the wise Asian elder in his sleep by this point in his career. I thought it was mildly amusing that although Mr. Luke was born in China, he plays a character called Sensei, which is a Japanese word for teacher or master. I realize this sort of thing is not unusual, but it is still amusing. I also find it interesting that one of the elders says that Superboy lives on the northern continent. I might expect that description of of North America from someone who lives in South America, but it sounds odd coming from someone who is presumably in Asia. At one point, you remarked on the fact that the Asian elder is called the old white guy, his brother. I just assumed they were monks of some sort who often called each other brother, Also, maybe that white elder was someone who, like Seth, was killed by the evil being from the box and was resurrected in the Enchanted Valley, forced to remain there forever. Superboy Rest in Peace was, as you noted, stolen pretty freely from the Terminator, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. I usually enjoy a time travel story where someone from the future comes back to the past to save someone important to history. It's a pretty common idea from episodes of Doctor Who and Star Trek to the entire series of Voyagers, so I can live with it. I kind of wonder why the authorities from the future sent Android Serene rather than maybe one of Superman's descendants back to the past, but I figured maybe over time, mixing with ordinary humans, the Kryptonian powers of his descendants would be diluted. But they clearly could build androids with powers, or at least heat vision, that are even stronger. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. Uh, Yeah, the power of evil was okay. It was definitely weird. It is something we're actually going to see in uh, The Sons of Icarus, uh, You're kind of going to see Superboy battling an animated character and in low-budget 1989 television, a low-budget villain with a booming voice, not necessarily the best of ideas. And uh, as far as uh, Mr. Luke being plays a character called Sensei, which is a Japanese word for teacher or master, that is what IMDb lists him as. I get all my guest cast listings from IMDb, so... I'm not sure where they get where they get their information from where that name comes from, but if it's submitted or somebody puts it in, but it could just as easily have been Elder one and Elder two, so I don't think anybody actually if I recall I'm not gonna go back to the episode to listen and see if anybody actually called him Sensei, but yeah, you know Chinese actors playing Japanese characters and vice versa is not uncommon in this era or even now I mean uh. About a month or so ago, Haley and I watched uh, the live-action Mulan on Disney+. Plus. And I didn't make it to her, but I kind of made it to myself that uh, it seemed like every major Chinese actor was in that movie. And there are more Asian actors now than there were before, especially back then. But you'd think now they'd it'd be easier for them to get it right. And uh, yeah, the Northern continent thing didn't uh, even register with me. But you're right, it does sound odd uh, coming from uh, someone presumably in Asia. And I did not think of the uh, old white guy as being uh, a brother in a monastery. Maybe I should have. My notes uh, usually are made as I'm watching the episode. So when I made that note, I didn't know about what was happening to Seth. So in hindsight, yeah, Dave, you're right. This could definitely be somebody who suffered a, a fate like Seth and was forced to remain in the Enchanted Valley forever. I kind of wonder what I would choose in if I were offered a similar choice. Anyway, moving on to Superboy, rest in peace. Yeah, I'm not going to dispute that. Yeah, definitely uh, ripped off the Terminator. I spoke about that quite a bit. And it, did it happen in episodes of Doctor Who? Been so many, it must have. Although the only uh, Star Trek episode I remember them going back in the past to deal with somebody was uh, to make sure she died, not necessarily the other way around. Yes, I'm referring to City on the Edge of Forever. And I'm uh, unfamiliar with that series of Voyagers. And ask for Dave's question as to why... Uh, The future sent the android Serene rather than one of Superman's descendants. I'm going to no-prize that for you, Dave. It seems that the trip back in time is one way, and I don't necessarily know the relationship between the future people and their androids. Is the android basically a piece of equipment? Is it like a command of data from Star Trek Next Generation that has rights and whatnot? We don't actually know the future relationship, like I said, between the humans and the android. So, perhaps the android was just more expendable than a flesh and blood person. I mean, if you could send this android, of which you can build another, why are you going to send Steve back to the past? You know, something to think about. And let's face it, it's not like, uh, I don't think it mattered about powers being diluted, because Serene didn't do a whole hell of a lot anyway. So, that's pretty much all I got on that. I have nothing else on either of those episodes. Thank you, Dave, for writing in. If... And if you would like to write in, manascreen at gmail.com. Now I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. And when I come back, I'm going to stumble and bumble through The Sun to Vicarus. Hang around, folks.
2: And action!
0: It's Fade Out. Hosted by
3: film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network.
1: Alright, welcome back folks. We're going to start this episode off with The Sons of Icarus. Original broadcast date was November 17th, 1990. Directed by Richard J. Lewis. Written by Paul Steubenrock. Guest cast includes Brent Jennings as T.O. Valjean. Lou Walker as Joseph. Alice McGill as Marinda. D. Christian Goshall as Artie. Rob Edward Morris as Malcolm. Annette Johnson as Jasmine. And a very young Wayne Brady as John. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. At the Bureau, Clark is picking out a book on flying from the library when Artie receives a call about a man floating over the city. When they all gather at the window to watch, Clark sneaks away and follows the man, a Superboy. He meets up with him at a power line tower where he carelessly floats into a live wire and electrocutes himself. As he dies, he mutters to Superboy that he's a Katia. At the Bureau, Clark is trying to find the meaning of Katia. As
0: far as his family is concerned, he was a normal guy.
1: How's it coming? Slowly.
0: What are you doing?
3: Superboy told the police the guy's last word, katia.
4: I thought I'd run it through some of our linguistics programs. Anything come up? Well, a couple of
3: things. In Gaelic, it, it's a whiskey that's served at Wakes.
0: <laughs> Wrong kind of line.
3: And in Mongolian, it means.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
5: right. Uh, I keep looking. Matt, can I see you in a minute?
2: <laughs> What's up? I just need you to make some quick checks, file a few reports, you know, make us look good at the home
5: office. Basically sweep a few things under the rug to meet our quota. We're paid to be skeptical. That's not why I took the job. I thought we were supposed to identify and investigate unexplained phenomena, not make up rational explanations for them and file them away.
2: Just play ball with me this once. I'll get someone else next month.
1: At the site of the old plantation ruins in the woods, Six black men talk amongst themselves.
2: As I see it, we're responsible for what
4: happened to Malcolm. If we hadn't started this, he never would have died. No, my brothers, no. What happened was tragic, but it was not a sign or a warning. It was an accident, nothing more. Now, I have gathered all of you here so that we may celebrate our birthright, a gift given to us by God himself to put us above all other men. All our lives we have scraped and scratched to survive in this world. They will call us gods and look up at us in wonder. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but I just can't walk away from that. But isn't this all irrelevant? We need seven to summon up the power. I have found another descendant of our people right here in Capital City.
1: Who is he? They discover that Matt is a descendant of the people that have this gift, and they plan to seek him in Capital City. One of the men, Tio, goes to Matt's home. Matt Ritter? Yeah. Son of Delano Ritter, grandson of Clement Ritter.
4: What can I do for you? My name is tio Valjean. I have some information that could very well change your
5: life. Well, I have everything I need,
4: Mr. Valjean,
5: but well, thank you.
4: What if I told you that your bloodline gave you the opportunity to be a god among men, to do things other men only
5: dream about? I'd say what I was going to say before. Goodbye. But Whether you like it or not, you are one of the cotillion.
4: are still skeptical, Mr. Ritter.
5: Well, I can understand how a myth like this could have been created by slaves longing for their
4: freedom. This but... goes way beyond slavery. It's about our heritage, faith in our history, faith in yourself. It's our destiny. And I can assure you, Mr. Ritter, this is no myth. This is Matt Ritter. He's going to give us our power back.
5: Oh, wait a minute. I...
4: How can you be so sure? What if we bring him in and
1: he isn't one of us? Then the power will be taken away. Well, Joseph. That night, they have a powwow, and Matt follows suit in their Katia chant. When one of the men rises into the air, Matt's faith in the myth of, of the Katia solidifies. Meanwhile, in the city, a fire creature appears and sets a block on fire. Superboy flies in to stop it, but his hands are burned by the creature. Once the Katia's chant concludes, the fire creature in Capital City vanishes. Now their powers have returned with Matt's presence. He is welcomed into the group. The next day at the bureau, Matt is resigning. You
0: resigned? Why?
1: I came here to explore all the big mysteries of the world.
5: Now I'm finding that sometimes the biggest mysteries are bottled up inside yourself. I don't know if you guys can appreciate that.
0: What happened to you?
5: You play with fire, you get burned.
0: Why can't you just say you grabbed a hot frying pan like a normal person?
5: I'm gonna miss you guys. Look, I gotta go to payroll. I'll talk to you guys later.
3: I found it. What? Katia.
1: It's an ancient African dialect. It's the name of a tribe. It translates to the flying people. Out of the hall, Tio, who works as a janitor, is angry when a passerby carelessly throws trash at his feet while he cleans. Then, he and Joseph discussed the fires that occur when they perform their ritual. How long have you known, Tio? About what? About the fires.
4: What do you know? That they only happen when we do a ritual. You knew about it, didn't you? Look, that's just a natural side effect. That's not our fault nor our concern. You've been given a gift a power that gives us dignity do you want to give that up because of a few fires what happens when others find out the power is strong matt and john are the only two who haven't felt it after they've experienced it they won't carry either.
1: to clark and lana visit an african african heritage bookstore where a female African historian tells the story of the Katia.
2: They came to the Lacroix plantation in the year before the Civil War. The cotton was in full bloom. There were ten of them. All men had just been bought fresh off the boat from Africa. They were sort of wild-acting and not trained in the ways of the Lacroix plantation folks. In a house, my great-grandmama, who was nothing but a young girl and looking for a husband, She could tell that there was something else different about these Africans. One of them took a liking to her, and every time he got a chance, he'd sneak up on her and whisper, Katia, Katia. Then he'd point to the sky. In a house, late that night, she snuck over, and there she saw the Africans, dancing and singing around that fire. But then just as she was watching, one by one, the Africans began rising up in the sky. She ran out just as a friend was climbing up, like he was climbing a ladder into the sky. And she screamed, take me with you, take me! But he just looked at her, smiled, touched his chest, and said, Katia! And flew off. Before she knew it, they were all gone. Every single one just up and flew away as free as you please. She told everybody. She never got tired of telling the story of them Africans who could fly. She told it to all her children. And she told them to tell it to all their children. Once there was a tribe of Africans who could reach up and touch the sky.
4: So then the recent sightings are descendants from the original tribe?
2: Well, after the Civil War, my great-grandmama learned that the Katia had settled nearby, living as free men. She began to keep track of all the male descendants because they carried the power in their blood. She passed it on to my mother, and now I keep the record.
4: All the modern descendants are on this chart?
2: If they are Katia, they're there. Mets on here is this a friend of yours yeah there's more to the legend that's not pleasant the legend has it that when a man goes into the sky a fire creature is forced down upon the earth trapped drawn to whoever is keeping him here so that he can be released
4: how does that fit in with your great-grandmother's story
2: the night the Africans flew the Lacroix plantation burned to the ground you can still see the ruins just outside of town. The power is best left untouched.
1: That night, Lana and Clark track the latest fire incident on a map to the northeast part of town where they wait for Matt to come home. Then, they hear a report on the radio about more fires breaking out. And then Clark fakes a failure to deliver some bureau reports to the fire chief and leaves. The fire creatures wreaking havoc on the city while the Katia are performing their ritual back at the plantation ruins. Superboy is attacked when trying to stop the creature, When one of the men in the group, John, descends back to the ground from his flight as a Katia, Matt is the last in the group to undergo the experience. Back in the city, the fire creature leaps to the sky and Superboy takes off after it. Just as Matt is about to have his chance at flight, Lana finds him and interrupts.
0: You have to stop this!
1: What are you doing here?
0: You're endangering people, you have to stop! What are you
5: talking about? You shouldn't be here!
0: Every time you fly, this thing comes down and starts fires. What?
4: Is that true? No. No, no. She's lying. She's jealous.
0: It's on the radio if you don't believe me.
4: Don't listen to her. We have to stick together, Matt, or they will come and try to turn us against each other. How can this be wrong? It's not wrong. God gave this to us. How can it be wrong? Matt.
5: Your time. I can't. Not if it means putting other people in danger.
4: We have been placed above other people.
5: God gave us this right. No. Nothing gives us that right. No. No. No.
4: No. John. John. John, you with me? John. Stefan. Stefan. They're trying to tear us apart, Stefan. John. Joseph, 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 stay with me. Stay with me, Joseph. We started, we were together at the beginning, Joseph. Okay. Okay. I don't need any of you. I'll do it by myself.
1: I don't need you. He rises into the air and the fire creature, being chased by Superboy, comes out of the sky and strikes Theo, and Superboy catches him and sets him down. In his last breaths, Tio says he wanted to be respected. I just wanted people to respect me.
4: They were always looking down on me. Just once, I wanted them to have to look up to see me.
1: This story is rooted in, in a made-up African mythology. I just did a quick Google search for Katia and nothing comes up, or at least nothing African. It could be a Slavic name, but nothing African about it that I could see in a quick Google search. So it's a, definitely a, a made-up ritual. It calls back to when African-Americans were held as slaves in the Deep South. This show takes place in Florida, which was a slave state back in the day. The show kind of dances around this a lot it doesn't run away from the fact that the original katia were slaves but it doesn't exactly go out of its way to highlight it either and it's really unclear what the group is trying to accomplish other than fly obviously the as the synopsis said in the ending Tio just wanted to be respected but for all the trouble this group of seven causes it just doesn't seem they have any well-defined reason for doing for doing this, aside from lust for power. But again, we don't know what they're going to do with this power, or what Tio intends to do with it. So It's very jumbled in its message, and I'm not going to sit here and judge whether this episode is racially insensitive or not. That is not my place to judge that. I don't think this episode ages particularly well. I mean, it just half-asses everything, basically. If I had to give you a definition of a half-assed episode, this is it. Because the story might want to go here, but it doesn't. It might want to talk about that Matt might be joining a cult, but it doesn't. All these other guys might be in lockstep with Tio, but they're not. This Katia group might be a force for evil, but it's not. And we don't really know what this creature is at the end of it all. It's just something that starts fires. so let's uh, roll into this, shall we? Clark's looking in a book called the mysticism of flying which is a curious thing of a Clark to be looking for and at the same time it's not obviously clark can fly he's been flying a superboy for if this show progresses in real time this will be his third year so why he'd be looking up a book on it now i don't know i guess he's never had access to a library quite like the bureaus before but then again nobody seems surprised about this uh Uh, Malcolm floating through the air, and uh, so maybe that's what he's looking up, trying to see why other people are flying. And Clark leaves, and uh, Lana calls him the least curious person she knows. Well, we all know why Clark's leaving, even if Lana doesn't. So Malcolm uh, ends up uh, on these electric wires, and on the big poles, uh, you know the ones, and Malcolm's not making any sense when he talks. He's stepping into space and flying, and then he just kind of floats into one of the Transformers, and gets one hell of an electric shock. And uh, his uh, final word that he was saying says that he is uh, Katia. The uh, show tells us Katia uh, means whiskey in Gaelic. I have found no evidence to suggest that's true. But they all crack up when they see what it means in Mongolian. And uh, that I really want to know. I guess I'll just have to use my imagination. So here we get a little bit of insight into the Bureau. And uh, Matt and Jackson are disagreeing on how to handle these reports. Apparently, they have an excess of unsolved cases, and they have to uh, come up with rational uh, explanations for them to uh, meet their quota. As a reward, uh, Jackson will uh, get somebody else to do it next month. And uh, there's a little bit of insight into Matt and Jackson here. Uh, I mean, we've seen before, Jackson is already kind of skeptical of the reports that come in. And it seems as though he sees like his job is to disprove extra normal reports and kind of find rational explanations for them while Matt is seeking to prove extra matters and not necessarily fit it with our rational explanation. So Matt's not too happy, and uh, I guess that's not what he signed on for. And it's clearly not the first time Matt has had to do this uh, end-of-the-month chore. So I'm not sure you could say there's a little bit of unhappiness with Matt at the Bureau, but it's definitely the first time we've seen him and Jackson disagree on something. So maybe that plays into what happens later. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. So, here is a group of black men uh, discussing what happened to Malcolm. And they sound, at least to me at first, listen, like a bunch of uh, religious zealots. They need uh, seven people to uh, summon up the power. And of course, it's going to be Matt, the show's one uh, black cast member. So, T.O. Shows, uh, shows up offering Matt the opportunity to be a god among men. I could definitely see how Matt thinks uh, he's crazy. And it's about to slam his arm in his face until he. Tio says that he's one of the Katia. Well, that gets Matt's attention, as uh, he just heard that uh, word at work today. Matt is skeptical, and the group is skeptical of Matt. Obviously, they don't know him. Matt is uh, walking uh, to the LaCroix plantation with his investigator's hat on, and the look on his face when when they get into the circle shows that he's a non-believer at first. And uh, they're chanting uh, Katia over and over again, and Matt is... At first, playing along, and the chant just kind of picks up in intensity. And there's chanting, there's drums, and one of them is taken off into the sky. And it, the expression here on Matt's face changes quite a bit. And it looks like we might have a convert here. And now we get a streak of lightning and a very poorly animated uh, being just kind of uh, waddles around the street. And they set the car on fire, and here comes Superboy to blow it out. And now Superboy's gonna go face to face with this uh, bad special effect. And uh, Matt is uh, chanting with uh, a little bit more, a lot more conviction now as Superboy gets uh, burned by the monster or fire being or whatever this is. I guess it's the being of fire. It's like more like an orange black blob with the like the rough outline of a person. And uh, it's quite powerful as it burns Superboy's hands. And so. It's one of two things. It's either immensely powerful, or it's a magical being. And it doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason for what it's doing. It's just, everything it touches just is set on fire. This must be what the group means when they say the embodiment of power. So, it seems like right off the bat that Matt has uh, joined a cult, and he's quitting the Bureau. I guess maybe combine that with his unhappiness yesterday of having to... uh, Run through all those closed cases and uh but you know he found something uh with the uh at the plantation and he's leaving and I like the interplay here between Clark and Lana Matt asks about the burns and uh Clark uh says well you play with fire you get burned and uh just shakes her head and says why can't you say you grab the frying pan like it, like anybody else would so I like that after Matt leaves uh, Clark has finally discovered that Katia is an African god that translates to the flying people. And again, I'm going to stress, at least from what I could discover in a quick Google search, this Katia thing has no basis in reality. If I'm wrong about that, please uh, let me know. But I'm pretty sure this is a made up cult with a made up religion. So now the Bureau for Extranormal Matters is not in its own building, it is in an office building with many other businesses. And uh, Tio is a janitor at the building. He's outside, working outside the Bureau. And uh, one of the others. This is Joseph. He, uh, I don't know what Joseph does for a living, but he seems, uh, very well put together. Maybe he's a lawyer or something, I don't know. But he seems to have connected the timing of the fires to the ritual, and, uh, he's, um, wondering if they're connected. And, uh, so there appears to be some, uh, dissension among the ranks here as Tio just dismisses him. And, uh, like I said, uh, Tio is a janitor, and he get as Joseph leaves, uh, he gets pretty, uh, annoyed at, uh, African-American lawyer who finished whatever he was eating on his way to the office and just kind of chucked the, uh, the used wrapper to the, uh, toward the bin, but didn't really, uh, bear no mind to the fact that he missed. So you can see just from this, that Tio definitely feels downtrodden and put upon. He feels as though people look down on him and the lawyer, not caring where his garbage landed, tells you how Tio feels about his position. So Clark and Lana move on to this African bookstore and, uh, there's this elder woman I believe this must be Marinda. She's uh, telling them a story uh, and apparently she witnessed a group that uh, somebody witnessed a group of Africans back during the days of the civil war chanting katia and flying away. At the same and uh at that same time the Lacroix plantation was burned and I guess it stayed uh, derelict for hundreds of year for over 100 years. It would be 130 years since the civil war. It'll be about 125 years since the end of the Civil War at that point. So apparently, uh, the Katia became the stuff of legends. And this is where we learn that the current Katia are a descendant of the Katia tribe from the Civil War era. And uh, Marinda has a ch- has a chart of all the modern Katia. And they find Matt on this chart. So they realize he's Katia. And through Marinda's uh, expositional dump here, we learn that when someone flies, a fire creature comes down from somewhere and uh like i said the, the night the africans flew the plantation burned down so apparently this is a power that no one should be messing with and uh Cattillo and his buddies are messing with it so uh clark and lana are kind of staked out at matt's place trying to wait for him to come home but he hasn't come home yet when clark hears a radio report of more fires and makes possibly the worst excuse in the world to get away from lana Oh,
4: no. I was
1: supposed to get the Bureau's report to the fire chief, and I never did.
3: I better get down there and hand deliver it.
4: I can drive you.
3: No, uh, wait for Matt. Uh, it'll be better. It, it'll be faster if I take a cab. I, 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 trust me.
1: Trust you. Yeah, whatever hour of night this is, he's gonna do that. So, now there's another ritual. Up goes Wayne Brady, and down comes the Orange Fire animation. Attacking Superboy and burning the hell out of him. Poor Gerard Christopher. Getting thrown around by an orange cartoon. So now it's uh, Matt's turn to rain fire from the heavens. And then Lana interrupts the ritual, telling them about the fires. And that seems to shake Matt out of whatever's happening to him. Everybody was on board until they knew that there was a real cost here. That this ritual is harming others. And I was guessing that now we were going to have an ethical debate between Matt and Teo. But my initial guess was that Tio wanted revenge for the crimes against his ancestors. But no, that's not it. He just wanted to be respected. And this is an extreme way to get that respect. And uh, and it turns out that the obsession consumed him as he, uh, as he summoned the power of the Katia, flew up, and the fire creature burned them. I don't know why. Maybe because he was the only one chanting. I don't know. But Matt is upset at the end. He came. So close to flying. So that gave Superboy an idea. And perhaps he should have warned Matt before he did this. He just kind of grabbed him and uh, flew off to give Matt a sense of what flight is like. Like I said, I don't think this episode ages very well. And there's a question of optics with the white girl telling these uh, black worshippers that they need to stop their ritual because it's harming others. But at least the producers were conscious enough that the lawyer who threw the garbage and missed the bin right in front of T.O., was also black. Yeah, but it just seems like this is one of, one of those episodes written, quote-unquote, for Matt. Because Peter J. Fernandez is black. There are probably better ways to showcase Matt than this episode. And again, like I said before, this group showed all the trappings of a cult. Complete with T.O., the very charismatic leader. But I thought the rest of the group bailed on him a little too easily at the end. When they realized the ritual was creating the fires. You know, It just seemed like they'd know what they were bringing down. Maybe T.O. didn't tell them everything. I don't know, but... And Matt's remorse at the end didn't ring true. When he says he almost did it, I thought he was talking about succumbing to the cult. But the fact that he's complaining that he didn't get to fly just seems to cheapen the journey Matt took in this episode. So, I really don't have anything else to say about this particular episode. I'm just glad to be done with it. So, let's move on, take a podcast promo break. And when I come back, we'll go to the carnival. Hang around,
3: folks. Okay, so a new podcast needs a new promo. I mean, how do I start? I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. I didn't invent the internet, but the internet was invented for me. No, that's way too egotistical. Uh, It's got to be awesome. It's got to catch everybody's attention. Also tell people what the show is about. So first things first, high energy pop music from the 80s. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder here to tell you about my new podcast, Spockward, a Star Trek podcast where I will talk about Star Trek twice a month. I guess, I guess that's pretty much it. Wow, it feels like there should be something more there, something grand and something epic. It also has to sum the show up, but I don't want to sound desperate. Maybe I should try another take, but this time there needs to be some epic epicness to it. Let's try this. In a world. Oops, oops, oops. Let me try that again. In a universe replete with Star Trek podcasts, one guy will challenge the status quo by boldly talking about Star Trek on the first and third Sunday of every month. Yeah, I probably had it right the first time. Spockward, a Star Trek podcast on the first and third Sunday of every month at Spockward.com or wherever podcasts are accessed. It's Star Trek fandom with a heaping helping of social awkwardness. Spockward, you get it? Yeah, you get it. See you at Spockward.com. Weeder out. Did I really just say Weeder out? Come on.
1: All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to finish things off with Carnival. This is episode eight of season three. Original broadcast date was November 24th, 1990. Directed by David Grossman. Written by Toby Martin. Guest cast includes, and this is a bit of a long one, Christopher Name as DeVille. Greg Allman as Samuels. Greg Allman, obviously, of the Allman Brothers Band. Claudia Miller as Beth. George Colangelo as David. Christopher Karish as Kid, number one. Danielle Carge as Kid, number two. Brother and Sister Act, probably. Amy Phillips as kid number three, and Shane Obatzinski as kid number four. And all four of these kids are probably the children of the Beth and David characters. Siobhan Rhodes as the Bearded Lady, John Edward Allen as the Dwarf, Janice Shea as the Fortune Teller, Billy Gillespie as the Cop, Elizabeth Fendrick as the Woman Hostage, and Leslie Lacey as Shelley. And our synopsis is brought to you by TV.com. On a thunderous night in an open field, a man jumps out of an 18-wheeler. Shortly after, DeVille's carnival is in full swing and a family comes in. Kids want to play games and have ice cream, but the father is reluctant to spend the little money he has. He decides to go ahead and treat the family, and as they head off to the carnival, DeVille purposely drops a wallet full of cash and walks away. The father takes all the cash and follows his family into a house of mirrors. He gets lost inside and DeVille appears. He seals the father's soul and places it into a chest filled with others. At a bar, Matt and Lana talk about people's disappearances.
0: Fort Arthur, Texas, 2 years ago, 4 people missing. Plainview, Illinois, 4 years ago, 6 people missing. Texarkana, Arkansas. Lana,
5: what are you trying to prove?
0: It's simple. Wherever the carnival goes, people end up missing.
5: Yeah, but do you have anything tying it to the carnival?
0: Well, no. But-
5: Lana, I bet people disappear every time the Grateful Dead do a concert.
0: I checked all the way back to the Lynchburg Gazette 108 years ago.
5: (laughs) Come on. DeVille can't be that old. Only Jerry Garcia is that old.
0: Same name, three people missing.
5: But these little carnivals, they've been around forever. And DeVille, the name's practically a cliche.
0: Well, what can it hurt just to check it out?
5: It can hurt plenty. I've had a full day. I need my rest. Fine. Flana.
0: Oh, worried. Maybe I'm not so crazy after all, huh?
5: No, no, you're crazy as ever. I was just thinking that maybe you'd have a better time if you didn't have to go there alone.
0: It's okay, Clark is going too. And when he gets here, will you please tell him to meet me there, if he ever gets here? Have you ever wondered why
5: he's always late? I just think he tries to put too much
1: into his schedule. The following day, a sedan with a frightened woman in the, in the back seat is being chased by police. Superboy flies down and stops the car. He stops the driver when he tries to escape. The man then taunts Superboy and nearly succeeds in making him crack.
5: So you got me. So what?
4: So you're going to jail. Jail? That's a joke. I've been in and out of jail since I was a kid. I know more about the system than most judges do. Well, this time's going to be different. Says who? I'm nuts, man. I'm crazy. Ask her. She wasn't the first, and she won't be the last.
5: I'll get a little more time with the shrinks, but they're dumber than the police. You can't do anything, can you, but stand there and look stupid? Let me tell you something, man to
4: man. She was asking for it. Let me tell you something
5: else. She was loving it. <laughs>
1: at the carnival Lana finds DeVille and they talk
0: Mr. DeVille I I just wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying the carnival
1: really it's only a modest little
0: show but thank you anyway I think it's great how long have you had it just a few years seems as though I've been traveling forever you must meet a lot of interesting people that's exactly why I bought it to find out about human nature. To see what people really want. And what do they want? Oh, the usual money, love, power, fame. But some people are curious. They want to bite the apple. The apple? Remember when the serpent tempted Eve? She gave in. Uh huh. Many people think that's when paradise was lost. But I think a whole new world opened up. And it's all in here. It's all in here, all the mysteries, all the secrets. It's right in here. But you have to be willing to look for yourself. I can't force you. It has to come from within. Come, look.
1: Maybe later. The villain intrigues Lana and is about to take her into one of the tents to feed her curiosity until a carnival freak walks out and scares her away. As Clark looks for Lana, he sees people fighting. He uses his super breath to blow down the strongman bell and scare, scare them away. Later, Clark finds Lana, who finds out that a woman's husband is missing from the carnival, but cannot file a missing persons report until they've been missing for 24 hours. While Clark sets out to get information from the carnies, Lana's curiosity leads her to the House of Mirrors. Outside, a little person tries to talk Clark into playing the dunk booth.
0: Four eyes. Think you can dunk me? Not now. Free shot for a buck. No thanks. You probably froze like a girl.
4: I don't, but I have other things to do right now.
1: Like what? Going to buy some cotton candy? Perfect food for you. Soft and pink. Give it a shot.
0: Come on. Chop me up.
1: No. You're just doing your job. Deville seems intrigued when Clark refuses. Inside the House of Mirrors, Lana gets lost, but then finds a hidden room. Outside, a fortune teller gets Clark's attention. Looking
2: for someone.
1: I guess that's pretty obvious.
2: I would have known anyway. I know everything.
4: Nobody knows everything.
2: I do.
3: Then maybe you can tell me who I'm looking for and where he is.
2: That is trivial.
3: Not to his family.
2: I have more important things to tell you about.
3: What could be more important than you? You. Me. I can tell you many things about yourself.
4: I already know about myself.
3: Do you? Do you know where you're from? Why you're here? You can tell me that?
0: If you come inside and let me see your palm.
1: I I don't think so.
0: Well, you're very strong, aren't you? And you've hidden it for a long time.
1: Inside the House of Mirrors, Lana discovers the chest full of souls, and Deville catches her opening it.
0: What's in there?
1: Don't they look familiar? they liars, thieves,
0: adulterers, people who couldn't avoid temptation, people like you. These are their souls. The people who disappeared. All safe and sound, right in here. This is my collection, my, my source of power. <laughs> who are you? Oh, I think you know the answer to that by now. Don't be afraid,
1: it's, it's not your soul I'm after your friends. Outside, Clark Superhearing detects Lana's scream, and he leaves the fortune teller to change into Superboy. He flies in and enters the House of Mirrors, where the man he caught from the police chase earlier is holding Lana. He crashes through the mirrors until he finds them. The man taunts Superboy again, and Superboy is close to killing him. she gonna live? How about one or two more minutes with her?
4: Is this it? You gonna finish it? You deserve it. You're right. You're the only one way to stop me. Go on. Do it. Kill me. There's no cops to stop you this time. It wasn't the cops that stopped me. You gotta do it. Do it. It's not my style.
0: You knew, didn't you? You knew!
1: It
4: doesn't matter.
1: You almost killed! Almost. When Superboy tries to stop Deville, he creates a diversion by smashing the chest of souls against the floor, releasing them, and then he disappears. Superboy! Lana, you alright?
0: But you beat him. He wanted to take your soul, but he he couldn't tempt you. I got lucky. No, 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 no. Was it wasn't luck. Think of all those people that gave in. You should give yourself more credit. You should be proud.
4: Well, I never thought of it.
0: Say it. Say you're proud for once.
4: You really want me to say that, don't you?
0: You gotta take pride.
4: But pride's a sin. Isn't it?
0: you're smart but one day I'll be back for you <laughs> not if I can help it no!
1: when superboy tries to get to stop him he disappears He's taking the carnival with him leaving superboy and Lana all right so this episode is if you haven't figured it out yet from the synopsis, is basically the devil tempting Superboy. And uh right now we episode starts off with a thunderstorm. It is a dark and stormy night, as Snoopy would write. And this is uh DeVille's carnival. I'm not very clever at all. The word devil is right in there. You know, and it just dawns on me, uh, when I'm taking my when I was taking my notes that uh the <laughs> I said that the dad was cheap. You know what though? And the mom was complaining that they never go out. But you know what? I've had my share of uh, being broke. So maybe I should have been so hard on the dad. I've been in that position where, you know, the kids want to go to the carnival, and I got three bucks to my name. So maybe I should have had a little more empathy there because I've definitely been in that position before. So the dad, his name is David, sees uh, the wallet on the ground and uh, finds the money. And DeVille sees it and smiles, and uh, it's clear that he uh, dropped the wallet, and he uh, sets off a turquoise balloon. Good thing it's not red. So... David uh, clearly took the bait, and now he's trapped in the Hall of Mirrors, and uh, which is not my favorite carnival attraction, I'll say that. I am not a big fan of mazes and uh, whatnot. I'm recording this on October 14th, you're hearing this around Christmas, but last weekend I uh, we went pumpkin picking and uh, went to the corn maze, which was interesting. Not sure why we let the three-year-old lead, but there we go. There were a couple times when I thought uh, the helicopter would have to come and fish us out, but... We made it out, obviously. While well, mirror is even worse. So, David gets the wallet and DeVille gets his soul. Seems like a fair trade to me. So, meanwhile, uh, then on the next day or that night, Lana is talking to Matt, trying to tie people disappearing to the carnival. I mean, and the the disappearing people are the purview of the police. Uh, that's not really something the Bureau would think would deal with, I wouldn't think. But Lana did point out that people have been missing from DeVille's uh, carnival for over 100 years. It doesn't necessarily mean there's one person there for 100 years, although we kind of know the case is uh, that it is. So here is uh, Greg Allman making his appearance in this episode. I'm not sure why they needed to, why this needed to be Greg Allman. I mean, was he really hard up enough that he needed uh, to do this bit appearance in a, a syndicated TV show? You would think if they're going to use somebody like Greg Allman, they'd use it for something better than this, but better than making an appearance as this uh, would-be rapist and kidnapper. Well, anyway, uh, Allman's character, I believe his name is Samuels, is uh, running from Superboy and mouthing off to him, uh, that he knows how to, uh, work the system. He tried, uh, raping, uh, this woman here, and, uh, when he bragged about it, that kind of broke Superboy's, uh, control a little bit, and he was, uh, looked like he wanted to kill him, but he doesn't. And it seemed like a throwaway moment when it happened in the episode, but I'm glad that, uh, It does pay off at the end. It would be silly to hire Greg Allman just for this. So, I have seen the actor who plays DeVille, uh, Christopher Neame, in mainly one thing. He was in an episode of Babylon 5, which I've always said is my favorite television show. The novel for television. He was in the first season episode, uh, The Sky Full of Stars, where he interrogates the station commander. So, basically, DeVille is making it his business to learn about human nature through temptation. And he's trying to tempt Lana with answers of some kind. But she's uh, scared by a scarred carny and kind of runs away. So now Clark is kind of roaming the carnival and he gets uh, flashed by this overweight hairy guy. No, I swear, it wasn't me. Clark is looking for Lana, a five foot seven redhead, And uh, the bearded lady turns around. She has red hair and that makes Clark look a little uncomfortable. Nope, he's not looking for her. Lana shaved this morning. So now there's a fight happening in the carnival. It just seems things happen at random. And Clark stealthily intervenes and everyone scatters. And this is where I'm kind of putting together the fact that I think the villain behind all this. Because you saw during the fight that all of a sudden well, the guy getting beat on seems to find a sledgehammer. Apparently his M.O. is to leave items of temptation laying around to see if people grab them and use them. He did it with the wallet with David. He did it with the sledgehammer with this guy. He's trying to tempt Lana, it appears, with information. But that doesn't seem to be working for him. So Clark finds Lana and she's upset because no one is looking for the missing husband. And she is irate that they have to wait 24 hours before they can report a missing person. I mean, have they never seen a cop show? Every cop show I've ever seen has said 24 hours. Although, and I'm kind of on Lana's side here. 24 hours does seem like a long time. Although maybe in 1990, it's not, a, it's not a long time, uh you know. Although now I think it should be shortened. I think 24 hours is too long now, especially with the constant uh, communication. I mean, I get nervous when I can't get somebody for an hour sometimes. But well, maybe it should be 12 hours or something. I think uh, to report someone missing, that's usually enough time to realize something's up. So now uh this dwarf on the dunk tank is uh, talking some crap to Clark about his arm, saying he throws like a girl and all that. So I'm guessing maybe this is Clark's temptation. But he uh, does not succumb to the taunting, and uh, Deville is watching him. And uh, Deville has got this bemused look on his face as he's watching Clark come close to giving in. And he takes a walk right up to the line and looks like he wants to give in, but then he pulls right back. So he showed that he's at least strong of will, at the very least. But Lana, meanwhile, still is poking around the house of mirrors looking for the missing husband. And now the fortune teller is trying to tempt Clark by telling him about himself, but he's working hard on resisting that because Clark doesn't know a lot about himself. Clark doesn't know his real Kryptonian name. He doesn't even know that he's from Krypton. We've danced with that issue a little bit, but Clark knew for a couple times during the Escape to Earth episode last season, but time travel took this knowledge away, and he will not learn his true origins in this show. So Now Lana in the House of Mirrors has found something she shouldn't have. Apparently, uh, she opened up this little uh, box, and she found the Souls of the people who couldn't uh, avoid temptation. They kind of look like little uh, sperms in this box. So I uh, wonder what happens to everybody's bodies whose uh, souls have been uh, disembodied. Uh, Apparently this is DeVille's collection and his source of power. And this is when DeVille reveals that he's after Clark's soul. But Lana's call for help got Clark away from the fortune teller and away from that temptation and into Superboy. And kind of here's my question here. Does DeVille know who Clark is? If he does, he doesn't say anything. And then veil kind of changes his shape to appear as the driver that Superboy encountered earlier in the episode. And the show does a good job of making you think this is Samuels, but it's actually DeVille taking his form. And, and Superboy goes right out to the edge and stops himself. Now, I don't know if Superboy is actually feeling tempted and wants, to, and wants to do it, or if he's just putting on a show for... DeVille's benefit, and the show doesn't really make that clear. Super, it, Superboy could have known that with DeVille all the time, but we don't know. Superboy says it was luck, but Lana is actually goading him into being proud, one of the seven deadly sins. And again, Superboy shows his brains and is not outsmarted by DeVille. So with that, DeVille disappears and the carnival is gone too. I don't know if the carnival was just a projection or what, but it definitely was connected to DeVille. And you know what I like? There's one thing I liked about this episode above all. You hear so much about a Superman is, or even you know, Superman or Superboy, for that matter, is a pro or not very intelligent. This episode showed Superboy's mental strength in two ways. One, he's strong enough to fight off Deville's influence and not give it to temptation. Plus, he's smart enough to realize he's being manipulated. So, I really like this episode better than the first one. You know, I love seeing Superboy's mental strength, uh, highlighted and when you think about it there is nothing superboy could have done physically to solve this problem this was all brain power and i don't think superman or superboy gets enough credit for that from the general public so i'm glad that it's highlighted here so next time two episodes i'm very fond of the test of time and mindscape and uh want to leave feedback it's always welcome manascreen at gmail.com if you'd like to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put "Manistream Podcast" in your search feed, and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manistreamcast, and uh, you can also leave uh, me a review over at Apple Podcasts. That helps uh, with the show's visibility. So, until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Manistream Podcast is produced by Mike Dimeo. The opinions expressed on this show are those of Mike demo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the 2 True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.2truefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Steam Podcast.